Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. In your son, Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to lay down his life for us. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous, the holy in the place of the unholy. Dying the death we deserve. And thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that death could not hold him, sin could not stop him, the devil could not defeat him. Thank you that Jesus Christ, your one and only son, lives today to make intercession for us as your people. And so may we this morning, once again, through Ruth's story, see the love of Jesus in redeeming us and saving us. And may Christ be magnified and made much of in our midst today. And may we leave this place thinking higher thoughts of him and having fallen deeper in love with him. So show us Jesus, I pray. In his name I ask it. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you so much for your presence here today. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. And I invite you to open your copy of the Scriptures this morning to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, that's Old Testament. It's toward the beginning of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would love for you to take the Bible that you see in the seat back of the row in front of you and page 263, 263 in that copy of the church Bible. And as you're finding your place there in Ruth chapter 2, let me just remind you that we're going to conclude our gathering this morning around our Lord's table. And so if you made your way into the auditorium without picking up a communion cup, please feel free to make your way out there at this time, and then you can come back in and join with us. You won't miss too much. But as you're finding your place there in Ruth chapter 2, let me just begin with a question. For those of you who are married, how many of you remember the first time you met your spouse? Those of you who are married, very good. For those of you who aren't married, how many of you are looking forward to the time when you will first meet your spouse? You're like, man, I wish God would show me who that was. And then I would love to meet them. That's something you can still look forward to because even 33 years later, I still remember the first time I saw Joanna. I still remember what she was wearing. See, every love story begins with a first encounter. Every love story includes a first impression, and that's Ruth chapter 2. So if this is your first time with us this morning, we're so glad that you're here. Let me just spend a few moments here bringing you up to speed in our study of the book of Ruth. We spent three weeks in Ruth chapter 1. Today we're going to dive into the first eight verses of chapter 2, where the focus is on a woman named Ruth and a man named Boaz. Now, Ruth is the Moabite daughter-in-law of a Jewish woman named Naomi. And Ruth has come to Bethlehem now with Naomi. This was home to Naomi until during a famine, she and her family left Bethlehem and moved to Moab. But that time in Moab turned out to be a 10-year train wreck. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons. And when she arrives back in Bethlehem, all she has left is her daughter-in-law, Ruth. There seems to be little hope for a future for either of them. 
because they're living in a male-dominated society with no man in the house to care for them. But God is not done with them. Because although they don't know it yet, God has a plan for them. He has just the right man in just the right place at just the right time to be a match made in heaven for Ruth. So let's pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out, and she went, and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord Jehovah God be with you. And they answered, The Lord Jehovah God bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. This is the word of our God. And I intended this morning to get all the way through verse 13, but there is so much good stuff here, I couldn't make it. So you'll have to come back next week for the rest of the story, okay? But in this scene, in verses 1 through 8, we discover a very important truth about God. It's the big idea that he specializes in doing extraordinary things while remaining extraordinarily anonymous. Think about that. God specializes in doing extraordinary things while remaining extraordinarily anonymous because he often works in unspectacular ways through ordinary people doing ordinary things. 99% of the time, that's exactly how God works. So we won't see God bring down the city walls like he did at Jericho. We won't see him stop the sun in its tracks like he did for Joshua. We won't see him part the Red Sea in two like he did through Moses. Most of us will never see God's visible hand do the miraculous. But that doesn't mean that he isn't at work in us or around us or for us. It means that like right here in Ruth's story, he is working through his hidden hand of providence. Now, we throw that word providence around a lot, so let's make sure we understand what it means. Providence is God personally and powerfully interacting in real time with real people and real events to fulfill his purposes. God working out his plans in real time with real people through real events 
It's Ephesians 1 verse 11 where we read that he works, present tense, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, we don't always see that happening because providence is the hand that we cannot see until after the fact. It's like when you hit those 13 straight red lights on the way to work that we talked about last week. Remember those 13 straight red lights? You hit those again this week, and, and then you come upon a horrible accident. And you realize that without those red lights, you would have been a part of that horrible accident. Or like when your company is downsizing and, and you're the fall guy and then you get a new job and you discover that the hours are better, the commute is shorter, and it's like the job description was written precisely for you. You can see clearly now the hidden hand of God's providence in the past. It has suddenly become visible, but only in the rearview mirror. Now, now, I want to be clear here, because sometimes when we look into that rearview mirror, we still won't see God's hand. Sometimes God's hand will stay hidden, but that's why we need stories like this, like Ruth's story, so that when we can't see what God is doing, we will still know that God is with us and for us, and He's working around us, because chapter 2 of Ruth's story is the rearview mirror to the train wreck of chapter 1. God's good purposes now are beginning to take shape when a man named Boaz takes center stage. And other than his name, we only know two things about him. First, we know that he is a worthy man, verse 1 says. In fact, the Hebrew word here literally means a mighty man of valor or a champion. Now, when we think of champion... We think of athletes like Muhammad Ali or Larry Bird. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael Jordan. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Or we think of mighty men of valor, great warriors in history like Spartacus or Richard the Lionheart, the Lionheart or King David. But that isn't the kind of champion or mighty man of valor that Boaz is. He's just a farmer. Now, he's probably a wealthy farmer, but still, he's a farmer. So champion isn't describing, or mighty man of valor, isn't describing what Boaz does. It's describing who Boaz is. As we're going to discover, he is a good man because he is a godly man. He's a 1 Timothy 6 verse 11 kind of man who doesn't pursue position and power and prestige. He isn't chasing after those things. Instead, he's chasing after righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. You see, so many man, men in Boaz's day, you go back to Genesis 21 verse 25, where we read that during these days... Everyone was doing that which was right in their own eyes, but not Boaz. So many men are all about building a reputation rather than building character. 
Reputation is what people think you are. Character is who you really are. So, men, I wonder, what kind of man do we aspire to be? Would those who know us best describe us as a mighty man of valor, a champion, because we are godly men of character? Do my own daughters this morning look up at their daddy and say, he's a good man because he's a godly man, not just at church, but at home? Is that what our wife would say? about us unmarried guys this is for you too because remember Boaz is a godly single guy who happens to also be a relative of Naomi's late husband Elimelech now you need to hang on to that fact because it's going to be super important later on all you need to know right now is that according to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 Boaz is the son of a woman we're familiar with, a woman named Rahab. Anybody remember Rahab? This is, this is so good. This is like super crazy. Because Rahab, like Ruth, was not a Jew. Although Ruth is a Moabite, Rahab was a Canaanite. In fact, she was a former prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. And when the city walls of Jericho came tumbling down, God providentially spared the lives of Rahab and her family because she hid the Jewish spies and helped them escape. Do you realize what this means? It means that decades before Ruth ever shows up in Bethlehem, God's hand has already been setting the stage for her because, as one author says, with a mother who had been a foreigner and a harlot, yet became a believer in Jehovah God like Ruth, imagine the stories that Boaz would have grown up hearing Imagine how that affects the way that Boaz views Ruth, the Moabite, when he sees her gleaning in his field. Other men may have simply seen a foreign woman scrounging for food like a parasite, but not Boaz. He will see something familiar and precious in a woman who has left her family, her nation, and her gods. Because in Ruth, Boaz will see reflections of his own mother. And here's where God's providence comes shining through the dark clouds of Ruth's history. Boaz is uniquely prepared by God for Ruth and Ruth for Boaz. As another author says, it really is a match made in heaven. I mean, this is crazy. And this is... You ever want to, you want to know what preachers sometimes feel? We, we, feel uh, we feel maybe a little bit of frustration when we discover something in God's Word that we can't communicate 100% effectively because as excited as I am, you're all looking at me like, no big deal. It really is a match made in heaven. Directed by God's hidden hand of providence. 
Because the puzzle pieces of Ruth's life aren't just magically falling into place. I mean, we've all put puzzles together, right? Jigsaw puzzles. You take them out of the box. You throw them on the table. They don't just magically go together. And the same is true in Ruth's life. No, it is God providentially setting the stage for Ruth. Years before she ever arrives in Bethlehem, God has already been moving the puzzle pieces of her life into place to fulfill his plans for her through Boaz, whom she hasn't even met yet. And if you're a child of God by faith in Jesus, that's what he's done for you with your past. And it's what he's doing with you right now in your present. And it's what he will do for you every day in your future. You see, there are no missing puzzle pieces in your life that God is scrambling to find. And there are no puzzle pieces that don't fit together because he's the one who shaped them. You see, nothing can keep God from completing his work of grace in you. Nothing can stop him. Not even an unexpected death or a difficult divorce or a financial crisis or a career setback. Nothing can because our God is the Isaiah 46 verse 10 God who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's what we see happening before our eyes right here in Ruth's story where his purposes for her will play out in a very practical way through her and her humility. It all begins in verse 2. Ruth and Naomi have real needs here. They need food. And with no man in the house to provide food for them, Ruth takes the initiative with her mother-in-law. She asks Naomi, is it okay for me to go out to the fields and glean the leftovers even though I'm a foreigner? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I'll, I'll find favor. I'll find grace with one of the farmers there. So is that okay, Naomi? Now, in 21st century America, the practice of gleaning is foreign to us. But back in the book of Leviticus, God had said that during the harvest, reapers were to, to make only one pass through the field. And any grain that was left, along with the grain that was in the corners of that field, was all to be left in the field. It was one of the ways that God would care for the poor and the widow and the orphan but back in Leviticus 19, God specifically says, I want to care for the sojourner, the foreigner, the immigrant. It's like back in the 80s when my brothers and I would take a big garbage bag out to Highway 18 just outside of town and, and we would pick up aluminum cans. Remember that? You remember those days? And then we would take the aluminum cans into town and we would trade them in for a penny a can. It didn't take long before we realized it really wasn't worth it. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't much. Gleaning didn't provide much. But it was better than nothing. 
And so as a field was being harvested then, those in need would follow the reapers and collect the leftovers. It's the only way Ruth and Naomi can ensure that they can put food on the table. And that's why Naomi says to Ruth, go, my daughter, go and glean. And so Ruth leaves the house And notice what the text says. When she leaves the house, she comes to the field, she happens upon a random field. But what she doesn't know is that she's in a parcel of land that belongs to Boaz. Now, at this point, remember, she has no idea who Boaz is. She doesn't know that she's in Boaz's field. And that's why the Hebrew wording here is fascinating. When we see it in our English Bible, it says that she happens upon or she happens to come to. But the Hebrew here literally says that Ruth, Ruth's chance chanced upon this field. Her chance chanced upon this field. The writer is kind of winking to us with his tongue in his cheek when he's saying, as luck would have it. Because we know, we know why the writer is winking with his tongue in his cheek. We know this isn't coincidence. We know that it's providence. God is up to something. He always happens to be up to something in the happenings of our lives. Ruth happens to come to Bethlehem at harvest. She happens to go gleaning. She happens to go to the field of Boaz, whom she doesn't know is related to her mother-in-law. And Boaz happens to be in the clan of Elimelech. And then of all the days for Boaz to visit this field, it happens to be on this day when Ruth happens to be in his field. All right, you have enough happens yet? What are the chances? If this were a chick flick playing on the Hallmark movie channel, right here is where we guys would look at our wife and we'd say, honey, This is so over-the-top unbelievable. It's ridiculous. Things never happen this way. And now, ladies, you have a comeback. You can look at him square in the eye and say, remember Ruth. (laughs) Because here comes Boaz. The knight in shining armor is now taking center stage. When he arrives at the field, he says to his reapers, Jehovah God be with you. Now imagine that when your boss arrives at work tomorrow, he or she greets you with those words. This isn't the way people talk, even in this day. It's not the way they talk at construction sites or in the office or on the assembly line. But I want you to notice that Boaz is not blowing smoke here. He's not putting on a religious facade here. He's not going through the motions here. And we know that because of how the the reapers respond back to him. What do they say? They don't say, yeah, whatever, Mr. Two-Faced Goody Two-Shoes. You've got a slaving away out here in the heat of the day. What a joke. You're not paying us a living wage, and you want to bring God's name into this? Who are you kidding? Uh, No. They say, and the Lord bless you. Right back at you, Boaz. 
There's an application here for us. You see, when you get that God has providentially placed you in your job at this time with this boss and these co-workers, it will affect not just how you work and why you work, but how you treat people at work. God has you there, not just for a bi-monthly paycheck, but for an eternal purpose. So be the kind of employer or employee that blesses people. Be the kind of Jesus follower that makes your workplace a better place, a more godly place. And young people, be the kind of Jesus follower that makes your school a better school. Not just because it's a good thing to do, but because it's the godly thing to do. That's what God says in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, and by implication, employees and students, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would obey Christ. Not by way of eye service. Don't just go through the motions as people pleasers. But as bond servants of Christ, Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And masters, employers, bosses, teachers, do the same for your employees and your students. That's Boaz here. When he turns to his foreman and he asks, whose young woman is this? Which in Hebrew means... I hope she's available because she's beautiful. Okay, so not really. I'm just seeing if you're still listening. But notice something here. Notice that Boaz doesn't ask who she is. He asks whose she is. Again, that doesn't mean he's asking, is she already hitched or is she still in play? No, it's the writer bringing, bringing us back around to the beginning of this chapter. What family, what clan is this young woman a part of? And again, that's going to be a very important question throughout the rest of the story. And so the foreman says, well, well she's, she's the one that everybody's been talking about in town. She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She showed up early this morning. But she didn't come looking for a handout. She, she asked for permission to glean. She came and said, please, please let me glean and gather after the reapers. And she's been at it all day except for a very short rest. Now, I think there's something here. There's something here for our young people this morning. And by extension for all of us, but primarily for our young people. You see, there are a few things that universally gain respect in any culture. And it's what we see here with Ruth. Her commitment to her family is known throughout Bethlehem. She is courteous. She doesn't demand the right to glean. She says, please. She works hard and she gleans all day with just a short rest. So young people, listen. Young people, listen, please. As you pray and plan about what you're going to do with your life, let Ruth be an example to you of the kind of person who gains the respect of others.
It's 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, where Paul is writing to the young pastor named Timothy when he says, Let no man despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Young people, honor your family. Don't demand from others. Be courteous to others. Say please and say thank you and work hard and all the time you're doing all those things, be humble and God will use, providentially use the character He's building in you to open doors for you. Just like He does for Ruth here. Because the foreman is impressed with her. But Boaz is interested in her, and he really wants to meet her. And so this is, in verse 8 now, the, the, the moment we've all been waiting for. It's a providential meeting right there in Boaz's field where he strikes up a conversation with Ruth. But he isn't going to do the typical guy thing here. He isn't going to walk up to her and say, hey, babe, you know who I am? You know how many fields I own? You know how many guys work for me? No, I want you to notice very carefully what he says. And in, in, in seeing what he says, you can hear how he's saying it. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Don't leave this one. Just keep close to my young women. How's that for an Old Testament pickup line? He doesn't say, hey, 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 hey babe, how, how's it going? Let's get together because two are better than one. He says, my daughter, which means that he is willing in the very beginning because of his godly character to step into the life of this foreign woman and be her provider and protector. You see, he isn't interested in what he can get from her. He's interested in what he can give to her and what he can be for her. By the way, young people, it seems like I'm talking to our young people a lot this morning. By the way, young people, when you are looking for a potential mate, look for that kind of potential mate. One who is not looking to get from you but one who will give to you, one who will be for you. Boaz is saying, don't worry about protection or provision. Don't worry that there's no man in the house. I've got you. I'm for you. You see, this is what love is and this is what love does it commits to seeking after and sacrificing for the highest good of another. That's what love is and does. But that isn't just Boaz with Ruth. That's Jesus with us. Because we are Ruth in this story. Every one of us has a story of sin and shame in our past. Every one of us knows to some degree the hurt and pain of life in a world of sin and suffering. 
But I want you to know that by God's providence, you are here this morning to hear about the love and the provision and the redemption of the Lord of the harvest. He's the Redeemer, the Provider, the Savior. He has providentially sent a Boaz to us. See, Jesus is the greater Boaz, the better Boaz, who lays down his life to redeem us, not just from a hopeless future, but from an eternal death. His love is a million times better than Boaz's great love for Ruth. Because Jesus gives his all. It's the greatest love of all to pay the redemption price for the sins of all who will come to him by grace alone, through faith alone. Will you? Have you? If not, why haven't you? 1 John 3 verse 16 makes it clear. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, Jesus. And why did he do that? Because without him, we were hopeless. Without him, we had no future. Without him, we were surely to spend an eternity separated from God in hell. And so Jesus comes to take our place as the go-between and stand between us and our sin and what it deserves. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, the holy in the place of the unholy, the sinless in the place of the sinner. Why? Why does Jesus die? So that he could bring us to God. That's why he's put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And that's why Acts 16, verse 31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Is that you? Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you come to him for provision and protection? The one who laid down his life for you. Will you repent of your sins and trust in him Right here, right now, this morning. It's no accident that you're here. And when you come to Jesus and trust in Jesus, then there are two takeaways from this story for you. Because God still specializes in doing extraordinary things while remaining extraordinarily anonymous. Working in unspectacular ways through ordinary people doing ordinary things. And here's what that means. It means, number one, in our seasons of waiting, he is still working. And maybe you're thinking this morning, as you look at the first two chapters of Ruth's story, you're thinking, but Pastor Ken, things are moving so slowly in my story and so quickly in Ruth's story. You know why we think that? Because we're reading the story, we're not living in the story. Think about those 10 hard, long years in Moab. Think about that 10-day journey back to Bethlehem. Think about probably these 10 hours Ruth gleans in the field before she ever meets Boaz. And even when she meets him, she has no idea what God has in store for her through him. 
It all seems to move so quickly because the the writer here is cramming 12 or 13 or 14 years into a four-chapter story. But when you're living in that story, it goes much more slowly. So what the author here wants you to know is that God is working in Ruth's story all the way through her story, even when she can't see it in her story. So when you wonder why God seems so slow in coming to your rescue and setting the stage for your redemption, remember that behind the scenes, in ways you cannot see, there is a good, loving, merciful, kind, and sovereign God, the same God who is there in this field on this day, is providentially setting the table to show himself strong on your behalf. I don't know how, and I don't know when, and I don't know where, but I do know this. The Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says that the eyes of the Lord runs to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. I do know that. So in seasons of waiting, we can know that he is still working because secondly, when we can't see God's hand, we can still trust his heart. It's Romans 8 verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with his son graciously give us all things? Do you see what we're being told here by Paul in Romans 8? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, listen, if God gave his only son to meet your greatest need of salvation, then how will God not with his son also meet your lesser needs, all of them? So when you look in the rearview mirror of your life and God's hand is still hidden, look back further, further to a hill called Calvary where God made his heart visible in the death of his own son for you. And that is why we need this time around this table each and every month. We need this time of communion. Because as Jesus said to his disciples, as he institutes communion in that upper room on the night of his betrayal and arrest, he says, when you eat this bread and when you drink from this cup, you are doing it in remembrance of me. It's a rearview mirror. And so as we come to this table to feed our souls on all that God is for us in Jesus, we look back through that rearview mirror and we can clearly see now God's heart for us in Jesus. He is all the proof that we need that like in Ruth's story, even when we can't see his hand, we can trust his heart. Even when he remains anonymous, and his hand is hidden from us. It is on a cross that he reveals his heart for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have 
eternal life. This is our God. Amen. And so, Father, now as we come to this table to remember and to proclaim our Lord's death until he comes, I pray, Lord, that you'd you'd build our confidence in you. That even when we can't see you, we can't see your hand, we can trust your heart. Even in seasons, long, hard, dry seasons of waiting, you are still working. You will not abandon your own. You will not forsake your own. May we believe that, even when we can't see that. Thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.